0: Let me open us in prayer. Father, we continue to celebrate the resurrection in this way. That Christ was not raised from the grave only to die again. Instead, instead, he has continued to live, completely defeating death, completely showing us that death has been completely defeated in Him. And that's what awaits for us. So, Father, as we go to Your Word, I pray that we would see the living Christ together. That we would recognize His death, His blood was for us. And that as we depend on the cross and as we depend on His blood to wash away our sins, that we would see that He continues to proclaim that victory as the living Christ, our living Lord. Father, show us this living Christ in Your Scriptures, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. There's no other way for me to put this than to say that what we're about to see this morning in 1 Samuel is just going to be somewhat of a strange story, Um, just some odd things that we're going to run across, and yet it's going to be an accurate account of God's power, His faithfulness, His judgment, and simply just because of our Easter sermon last week, we took a break, a one-week break from 1 Samuel, but we're back in 1 Samuel today, and we're going to start in chapter 5 and so where we are in the story is that the Philistines have just defeated Israel. And not just a small defeat, but a, the Scripture tells us it was a very great slaughter. And that, um, and that in that slaughter, they captured the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And the Philistines now have it, and it's in their possession and in their land. And so as we come to chapter 5 we will see that the enemy of God's people now have this ark in their possession. And so we will see what this now means for that country as we approach this text. And so what I'm going to do, because of time, I'm going to read the first nine verses in chapter 5, and then we're going to look at chapter 6, and I'm going to read there. So uh, even though I'm skipping some, it will be a lot of reading, but I hope that you will follow along and see this story unfold before us. So First Samuel chapter 5. Hear the word of the Lord. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon... And put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the truck of Dagon trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? and they answered let the ark of the god of israel be brought around to gath so they brought the ark of the god of israel there but after they had brought it around the hand of the lord was against the city causing a very great panic and he afflicted the men of the city both young and old so that tumors broke out on them. And then we find that they want to then get rid of it out of their city and they take it to another city within Philistia called Ekron. Same thing happens and they want to get rid of the ark. This is, so we pick up here, chapter six, verse one. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what shall we send it to its place? And they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And they answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods in your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them. And take the ark of the Lord, and place it on the cart, and put put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off, and let it go its way. And watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, as Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So just quick catch up here. The Philistines recognize it is not good to have the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And so now they want to give it back to Israel after they had captured it, proclaimed, after they had proclaimed their victory, captured the God of Israel, placed it in their possession. They want to get rid of it. The priests say, Make sure you send an offering with it. And they they um, put an offering of formed gold and mice in the ark. Okay, now every commentator that I referenced recognizes that the author of this book sees that this was bizarre and just uh, silly in a sense. And the author of First Samuel here is showing that he recognizes this is just they have gotten to the place of being funny. Uh, because of how much pain has come to their nation, that they are going to put tumors of gold and send back. And then their priests decide that this is the way to see if this is really God or not. Put the ark, uh, attach it to cows, and then take their calves, put their calves back home, but make them go in the opposite, see if they will go in the opposite way to Israel. And if they go to Israel... And not to their calves, and that means this really is God that has done this to us. Okay? That's where they are right now. So verse 10 says, "...the men did so, took two milk cows, yoked them to the cart, and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction..." And it's okay to laugh at that. "...and the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway." "'Lowing as they went, they turned neither to the right nor to the left, "'and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. "'Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, "'and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. "'The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. "'A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart "'and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord.' And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of beshemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages, the great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord as a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Bethshemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of kiriath Jerem, saying, The Philistines have returned to the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Now, as... We read this account and we see all of these different uh, things coming together and some of these things, as I mentioned, are strange. They're odd and we admit some of that. Even the author of 1 Samuel who's writing from um, uh, his witness of it or his um, hearing of it even finds it bizarre and odd in some areas. Now one thing I want to mention is we look at A story of Israel like this and a story of their enemy like uh, the Philistines. What's important is that the New Testament does not let us parallel a nation with the nation of a nation of today with a nation of Israel. What the New Testament does instead is it calls us to parallel the church with the nation of Israel, and it calls us to see the nation of Israel as the people of God. And so we make mistakes when we look to, um, look to draw parallels with nations today with the nation of Israel. And so what's important that we do is that when we read the Old Testament, and an accurate way to see a story like this is to connect the church of God with Israel as the people of faith. And the way the New Testament does it in Galatians 6.16 is that they call the people of faith the Israel of God. And so as we look at this story about Israel and we see all of these events coming together and seeing the results of these battles, it really does come down to this one statement. It it can come down. We see this in the text that there is only one true sovereign God. It comes down to that. So we're going to see a few things. Number one, we're going to see our dangerous desire to be God's. We're going to see our dangerous desire to be God's. We're also going to see getting God out, um, our desire and the world's desire to get God out, and then His faithfulness to come to us. So this passage, it begins with this wild account, and the account begins with the Philistines placing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord next to their god, Dagon, the god of the Philistines. Now here's what's important to understand about ancient Middle Eastern uh, religion and the under, understanding of the gods. That every nation works, worship multiple gods, even Israel. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, when we see Israel judged and called to repentance throughout the Old Testament, it's always in the context of um, their worship of other spiritual adultery. That's how it is mentioned. And when they're called to repentance, they're always called to denounce the other gods that they have tried to combine with the worship of Yahweh. And so, as we look at the Philistines, it is important for us to see that what they are doing with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is they are placing it there to show that the God of Israel is in subjection to um, or submissive to the God of the Philistines, Dagon. However, at the same time, what they are doing is that they are recognizing the limits of Dagon. And so they are looking for the God of Israel to be a part of their nation to help them in the, in the ways that Dagon can't. And so more than likely, what's going on in Philistia at this point is that it's not just Dagon and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. There's other gods that are there in, within this sanctuary for them. And so it, it's just a sanctuary most likely of many gods. And so when we get to this point, they're setting the Ark of the Covenant there to be there with the other gods. And so what we see at the beginning of chapter 5, they are placing the Ark there that represents the God of Israel, and they are hoping now that their nation will be even stronger and greater. So this, again, this is to accomplish two things. Show that the God of Israel is weaker than their God, okay? Dagon, and then also rely on the power of the other gods that are all there, that they are building up, as they are building up their nation. But this is what we find in verse 3 of chapter 5, that the next morning Dagon is found face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Now this, of course, as the Philistines walked in, was not a good picture for them. Because what this is saying is, is that here we have left, now we have come back in, and our God, though we place the God of Israel here to be in subjection to our God, our God is actually in a position of submission, maybe even bowing to the God of Israel, submitting himself before the ark. So what did they do? Well, they came and they got Dagon up off of the ground and placed Dagon back. But then the next morning, Dagon is then back face down with his head and his hands cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Now, here's what this is telling us. Obviously, this is telling us that Dagon had no power. And in a, way, in a way, the Philistines knew this. They were disturbed when they came in the first morning, but what did they do? They pick him up, place him back, if it's a shelf, they place him back on a shelf in his place. Consider this. They're saying, here, let me help you get back in your place of authority. Here, let me help you get back in your place of being an authoritative God. Now, what would have made more sense would have been for them to see Dagon there and to say, the mighty Dagon, he will um, place himself back there. This is our mighty God. This is the God of the Philistines. But no, they understood. They were very well aware that they needed to pick Dagon up and put him back. Now, if you skip forward a thousand years or so, Paul is addressing this very thing in Athens in Acts seventeen twenty four. In Acts seventeen twenty four, he is at the Areopagus and he is addressing philosophers and other people of religions, and he is introducing them to his God. And this is what he says in Acts seventeen twenty four. He says The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Paul is saying something, and it's important for us to understand that he is saying something that is very terrifying to the people that are listening. And in many ways it's very unwelcome to most of the philosophers and people of religion there because he is saying that He is saying to them, there is actually a God that does not need your hands to make Him and to form Him. He does not need your allegiance to Him to give Him purpose and to give Him existence. And he says, in fact, this God gives life and breath to everything that has ever been created. Everything that has ever existed. He is the one that has given life and breath. So Paul is saying these things, they're terrifying, unwelcome, because he is saying that there's actually a God out there that doesn't need your hands. And so this is the same way of saying there is a God that doesn't need you to pick him up and place him back on a shelf. Now today, our sophistication emerges as we have moved our idol worship to things like money, Right? Our spouses, our children, our lifestyle, works-based religion, and the list can go on and on and on. But here's where it all comes from. It all comes from this. It all comes from our desire to be a God. We may say, I've never sought to be a God. I've never wanted to be a God. But what this means is, is it all comes from our desire to hold power. It all comes from our desire to have control. So here, and this is what Dagon represents. This is what the golden calf rep- represents in Exodus, at Mount Sinai. And this is what our idols of the day represent. And they, they all have this in common. They are weaker than we are. Dagon is weaker than the Philistines. The golden calf is weaker than the Israelites. Money is weaker than us. And we try to give it power. We try to exalt it so that it can exalt us, so that it can lift us up. And so as we worship these things and as they worship those things, as we look to even give these things some kind of control over us, ultimately what we're doing is we're wanting to have control over them. And so even as we look at this crazy story about the Philistine God, it leads us to ask the question of what what are we looking what are we looking to to make us a god what are we looking to to exalt us to lift us up what are you seeking to give life to what are you trying to give life to and power to so only so that it can turn and make you a god. And it's something to be very honest with here because do you see the ridiculousness of picking Dagon up off of the ground and putting him back in his place of authority? And this is what we so often do as we look at the things that are our idols, as, as the things that we worship and give our lives to. We are looking to pump life into those things only so they can make us some type of God. Now, here's the problem with that. The problem is, is there is that there is actually a living God. And this is what the Philistines had to face. Even though they knew that they were having to pump life into their God, they're seeing that there is actually a living God. That there is something that has authority over the things that, that has authority over them. Not only does the living God have authority over Dagon... And all the living gods that we have set on our shelves. And not only can he take them away immediately, but he has control over our very lives, our very breath. And that can be a terrifying thing. And this is what's happening here. And this is what the Philistines are being exposed to. And so we are called to be aware of this as we see this story. We are called to be aware that sin can really be traced back to this very thing. It can be traced back to this dangerous desire to be our own gods. Now, it manifests itself differently in each of us. We may have different ways in which we try to express this or long for, for something like this. But it's a call for us to see what God is telling us through the Scripture and see how we have the same, we have been born with the same fallen nature as the Philistines have. So this is this moment must go beyond this. It must go beyond right now, or this uh, this awareness must must go beyond this moment. This is a call for us to continue to pursue repentance in this area of our desire to be our own gods. Now, what we see in the story is that this left the Philistines with tumors, uh, death, uh, deathly panic is what the scriptures tell us. The hand of God becomes very heavy on the people. So in other words, this is saying that the glory of God has been revealed to the Philistines in His judgment and in His power, in His wrath. And so what do, they, what do they desire now? They desire for the Lord to get out of there. They want God gone. And that leads us to our second point, God getting out. So please follow the strategy of the Philistines. The Lord of hosts has revealed His might and His power. He has proven... He has proven that there is no God like him. And so the people of Ashdod want to send him to another city, which results in Gath wanting to send him to another city, which results in Ekron wanting him to get out of there. And, and perhaps the people of Ekron are smarter than the people of the other cities because they don't want to send him anywhere else in their nation. They want him back to Israel. So they seek the counsel of the priests and the diviners, and they come up with this crazy plan. Which, of course, as I mentioned, is bizarre, humorous in ways. And they want God out of there. (laughs) They want to get Him out. Now, following any type of punishment or discipline, my son, Samuel, who gets so much from his mother. um, Y'all know that's not true. He's so strong-willed. And he wants to be in control so much that every time that there's discipline or correction, I will seek to quickly try to reconcile. And so what I will do is I'll say, Samuel, do you understand why you're in trouble? Do you understand why I had to give you a spanking? Do you understand what you did? Do you know that I don't want to do that? And here's how he responds. He says, will you please get out of here? (laughs) (laughs) He says, will you please leave me alone? He wants me to leave. He wants me to please go away. Now, do you see that the Philistines just want the Lord to leave? Here's the Most High God who cannot be denied. They're recognizing this is the God of Israel, and yet they want Him out of there. And this really messed up their plans, their ideas for their defeat of Israel. This messed up their opportunity to exalt themselves. They planned on adding the God of Israel to their arsenal to give them whatever their other gods could not offer to their trophy case, a God that would serve them and allow them to continue in their pursuit of being their own God. But now that they have seen that there is evidence of one truly sovereign Lord that is sovereign over all gods, they want Him gone. They don't choose to worship Him. They don't choose to submit to Him. They don't put their nation in His hands. They want Him out of there. Here's the one true sovereign Lord. Greater than them, greater than their gods, but they want Him out of there. Now... They're getting God out. This is such a clear picture of humanity. This is such a clear picture of humanity that knows deep down that there's a God of heaven and earth who is eternal, who cannot come under our command, cannot be fashioned by us, and yet the nature of the lost world does not move itself to worship Him, does not move itself to be in a position of subjection, The nature of the lost world is to get God out of here. Get Him out. Make Him die. Remove Him from our midst. And this pattern has proven itself over and over again. It's not just our nation. This has happened throughout time. Of a God who reveals Himself as sovereign and powerful, mighty, present, alive, and the people want Him out. People want Him gone. The world has never had any affection for the one true God or what He stands for. And yet, what we see from this story is He continues to exist. And starting in verse 12 of chapter 6, so we're over in chapter 6, we see this is not Israel going to find their God or this is not Israel saying the glory of the Lord has departed, we must seek Him out. But what we do see. What we, do, what we are aware of here is that God's, we see God's faithfulness, God's willingness to come back to His people. And that's what we see at the end of chapter 6. And this is a picture for us of God's faithfulness to come to us. And I hope we will see this here. Because when we look at verse 12 of chapter 6, we see that as the Ark of the Covenant is attached to these cows and their calves are sent back home, which is in the opposite direction of Israel, what we see is that these cows are going to go in the direction of Israel. Now, I don't know much about cattle. I've never tried to herd cattle. I've never tried to make cows go in a particular direction. But I have learned that lowing, which is talked about here in um, verse 12, that lowing means mooing. (laughs) And, when a, and what this is saying is is that here are these cows going opposite of their calves where they would naturally go and they're mooing the whole way. And, and, and this is to say that the cows are saying, what am I doing? I want to go with my calves. I want to go where I'm supposed to go, but instead I'm going here and there's nobody driving them. There's nobody steering them. They're lowing the whole time as if someone is forcing them to go to Israel. As if someone is forcing the Ark of the Covenant to go back to Israel. Now, when we see that the Ark of the Covenant and these cows get back to Beth Shemesh in Israel, we see that many were struck dead. Many people of that place were struck dead. And the best description of this that I can find is that when God's... God's Uh, presence, came into Israel in the way that it did in chapter 6. And we see that these people were all struck dead and it says that Israel suffered a great blow. The best understanding of this is that there were people there in the presence of the Lord that either looked upon the Ark of the Covenant in pride sensing that they were worthy of the presence of the Lord. Or either there were people there and it was most likely a mixture of both. Or either there were people there that saw the presence of the Lord coming their way and they despised the presence of God. And they were struck dead in His presence. Struck dead because of either their pride or their despising of God's presence. Now this points... This looks like terrible news, but this is actually great news. Because this points to a great promise to God's people. Because this tells us that one day, this is telling us here, that one day God would come, not in a box, but in the flesh. And His glory would would then descend upon the earth, and He would come to pay for the sins of His people by His own blood. And when His glory comes, He always calls people to faith and repentance, and it's always by His grace. And it is always a glorious time. And so what we can know is that this is a glorious time for the people of God, but it is always a determining time. It is always a time when he, people are called to faith and repentance. And the people that have been extended the grace of God, they are determined as God's true people. So i, I leave us here as we're, we finish and as I try to see the, um, the, the big story and this small story of this promise that the one true God will not abandon His people, He promises His saving presence to His people. And when He comes, when He comes, we see here that there's great danger In looking upon the presence of God with pride to consider that we are owed the presence of God or that we have earned His presence or that He has has poured out His favor upon us because we are greater than another nation or another people or another neighbor. And also there is great danger in despising the presence of God. To, like, to enjoying things the way that they are, to enjoying, in, having enjoyment in our own control and in where we are in our life and not wanting anything to disrupt that. And so there were people in Israel at this time that the glory of the Lord had departed and they were getting along with their life. Their life had moved along. And when the glory of the Lord returned, they despised His presence. This is a call to us to long for God's glory here, to long for his presence, to understand that he is a God that comes to his people. There's nobody driving the cart. He comes to his people. And when he comes, we are to look upon him with humility, repentance, and faith. And being so thankful for his presence. Because whether it's with pride, or, with be, or despising His presence, both are ways of saying that you want to be your own God. That you like things the way that they are when you are in control. Both are rejections of a gracious God who has come for His people. The gospel is that He has come. That we did not get Him here. We were not able to establish a path for Him. He came. And He came in His grace and in His goodness. I want to close with this passage in Hebrews 2 and I hope that you'll turn there with me in Hebrews 2 verses 14 through 17 because this passage tells us about God coming, being faithful to come to His people not neglecting us and being willing